Our reading this morning is found in Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, a servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Beret. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. Thank you very much, Graham, and our musicians, and uh, Jay and Mary, for your uh, prayer. Now, our um, expectation, and indeed uh, anticipation, as we are gathered together under God's Word, is that God will speak to us, and therein we will encounter the living Christ and be changed And it's absolutely what we should be expecting when we we come to God's Word, that we meet with Jesus Christ. He lives in us in the person of the Spirit, and so the Word of God connects with that and raises our affections for Jesus within us. It's what Mary was praying, and it's right to pray and expect that. The one thing that we, we must do, though, is all of us sit under what God says in His Word, not change it, not add to it, not subtract it, but trust it. 
and trust that it's the right word for us today. So let's pray to that end. Our loving Heavenly Father, please would you speak to us through your word preached. Please would you manifest yourself among us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit. And please would you uh, change us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now we'll consider Genesis chapter 16 under three headings. The terrible tragedy of sin the only way of salvation, and the astounding kindness and commitment of God. Firstly, the terrible tragedy of sin. Now, the best museum, and this is a personal opinion in London, is the Victoria and Albert Museum. It's a combination of the exhibits and the uh, refreshments on offer. Um, It's such a good museum that they built one in Dundee, although the one in Dundee doesn't contain any exhibits. It's a strange museum. And it's shaped like a ship. Of the many best bits of the V&A in London, one of the very best bits, and uh, we were able to go and see it this summer, is the new exhibition of priceless jewellery. Now, the collection of jewellery is the largest collection in the world in one place. But it's not that that is the most impressive thing. It's the exhibition set up. It's set up like um, it's based on Tiffany and Cartier. It's a double deck, um, like a jeweler's shop, uh, filled with glass cases, ambient lighting, designed to make the gems sparkle. And it creates a kind of kaleidoscope of color that shoots across the whole space. But, of course, and this wouldn't surprise you, the floors and the walls and the ceiling and the cloth in the cabinetry is jet black. Jet black to show off the brilliance of the precious stones. And likewise, the beauty and purity and the radiance of Christ and the gospel and the salvation to be found in him and in him alone is seen most clearly, felt most powerfully, against the reality that is the terrible tragedy of sin. Let me say that again. Seen most clearly. So seen most clearly is important, but felt most profoundly. Felt most profoundly against the terrible tragedy of our own sin. My sin, your sin, as human beings. Now, one of the ways that we come to a profound assurance as Christians in our Savior is by facing up to the reality of our sin. Seems an odd thing to say, but it's true. Honesty, realism, and then we find Christ. What's described in this chapter is real, it's shocking, and it's desperately sad. Not least because it follows after the events described in chapter 15 when God came down and manifested himself to Abram in the smoking fire pit. If you were here last week, you remember that and the, the, the lightning bolt that held its shape. Now, it's sequential in Genesis, but there was a passage of time. Let's just read from the beginning of chapter 16 and we'll see what happens. Now, Sarai, this is verse 1 of chapter 16 again, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, that's a very significant statement in the context of Genesis. Let me show you why it is. So turn back 
And uh, we often do this to chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, which is God's foundational promise. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, implicit in that promise is an heir, obviously. So Abraham and Sarai need to have a child for all of that to come true. Now, go forward in time and in your Bibles to chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me, this is to God, no offspring. He's thinking of the promise. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So God be your heir. This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. And then that kind of grand statement of faith in Genesis 15, a high point in Abram's life, he believed the Lord, he took God at his word, he believed the promise, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And that's the first instance of somebody in Scripture so clearly justified or saved by grace, God declared to him righteousness. What did Abraham do? He just believed. Now, back to Genesis 16, verse 1, and this time we'll read on. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So how could the promise be fulfilled? She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. A slave. That's what it's saying. And Hagar was the property of uh, Sarai. And it's very important that we don't disguise the reality of what's going on. Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Why I say I shall obtain children by her? Because she was the property of Sarai. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian as servant and gave her to Abram her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now, while that practice may have been culturally acceptable at the time, it is clearly and plainly described to us here as sin. The Bible never condones polygamy or slavery. Never. It's awful. Now, Abram had seen God, as we read, and he'd heard God speak directly to him. And God had spoken very specifically to him, but he did not listen to the voice of God. Instead, he listened to the voice of Sarai, his wife. Now, that's a mirror of Genesis 3, 
when Adam did not listen to the voice of God, but listened to the voice of his wife, Eve, who is culpable. Adam was culpable. Abram is culpable because they were the ones to whom God appeared and to whom God spoke. But he didn't listen to God. Instead, he went in to Hagar and she conceived. Reading on, and when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, what is the cruelest thing that anyone could do to somebody who cannot have children? To look on them with contempt because you can and they can't. That's exactly what's going on here. It's terrible, it's shocking, it's cruel. It's not insensitivity, it is contempt. And Sarai said to Abram, and I think she's just expressing her distress, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. What she's expressing is the deep heart and distress. And Abram's response is shocking in its insensitivity and its callousness. Abram said to her, Sure problem, that's what he said. And then Sarai beat Hagar. I think that's a better translation. It's the same word dealt harshly as is used in Exodus for the way the Egyptians treated the people of God. And Hagar, with her child that she was carrying, fled into the wilderness terrible tragedy of sin. It is awful. Now, if Christianity, and there are people who think this, maybe maybe someone here or even listening thinks this, it's very, very important that we lay this ghost to rest. If Christianity were about living a morally upright life, and these people, not least Abraham, are the examples of faith, then it would be an abhorrent religion condoning what is so clearly wrong. But Christianity is not about that. It is about coming to terms with the fact that as human beings we are thoroughly sinful, that we are caught up in this terrible tragedy that is sin. Coming to terms with that and finding the answer to that. All of us are. All of us are. Now, I want to dare to suggest, and this has grown on me uh, over the week as I have wrestled with this in my own heart and my own life, I want to dare to suggest that what is described here is not extreme, is not extreme in the sense that this stuff never happens. It happens all around us. All this kind of stuff, all the time. Culture may change. And there are major steps of progress in our culture, like the treatment of, of women, the ab abolition of slavery. But the sinful heart finds other ways to express itself in ways that cause damage and hurt. This is real. Sin is awful. This church family is full of people whose lives have been damaged by the sins of others 
and who have damaged others. And as Christians, do we not wrestle and battle and struggle with stuff that is dark and shameful? Now bring to your mind, as I have had to do this week, what you think about, how you speak of others, what you speak about, how you speak of others. Our relationships. The terrible tragedy of sin. One of the greatest parts of the testimony of the Apostle Paul is in Romans 7 when he says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Now, it's really important when we come to a passage like this in the Bible that we, 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 we kind of waggle on the T for as long as it takes for the reality of the sinfulness of our hearts to convince us that we truly are wretched. It's not to beat us down, it's to be realistic and to be honest. It's so that we might see the brilliance of the gospel and the Lord Jesus for all that he is to us and for us and in us. Please don't think that the person to the left and to the right of you or in front of you standing up is less wretched than you. So what hope is there? And, and, and we can think about the ABC of the gospel and we know it. We know the equation of the gospel, but what God's word does within us is it, 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 it gets inside of us and we're convinced of it. We really understand it. We plumb the depths and scale the heights. We embrace Jesus in all that he is and his beauty and his power. What hope is there? The only way of salvation is trusting God's promise. That's perhaps a major strap line of Genesis. That's our second heading. Consider Abram. He wanted salvation. He wanted what God said he wanted to give him. He wanted salvation. He wanted this glorious promise to be fulfilled. He wanted it, but he took it into his own hands as to how to get it. He did not trust God's promise. Now, stand back from this and look at the big picture of salvation. We need salvation. Humanity needs salvation. Humanity needs something to get out of the terrible plight and mess that we are in. How do we get it? It's got to be through God's promise. And we saw last week in chapter 15, and go back and listen to that if you weren't here. It's a, it's a wonderful passage that God's promise to save us is unconditional. Unconditional. I mean, that's radical. Unconditional. Our contribution is the obedience of faith. 
When you accept that, it's wonderful. But we're hardwired in our human hearts to think that we can save ourselves, or I wonder if some of us are hardwired to think that we must have to play some part in saving ourselves. Surely it cannot be that simple or that easy. Now, I picked these two words intentionally, simple and easy. It is simple and easy to explain the gospel. It is simple and easy to explain that salvation, rescue, the redemption of humanity is not able to be achieved by humanity, but it needs an alien, an outside righteousness to come in. That's easy to explain. Unconditional promises. But it's hard to accept. Why? Because in our rebellionist humanity, we have taken the place of God. It's a massive thing for a human being to surrender their self-righteousness. Now look what happened here when Abraham and Sarah I took salvation into their own hands. It was a mess. What happens if we take salvation into our own hands? And I know that there are some of you, when I... You always say that as a preacher because almost certainly there is somebody. But I really do know some of you listening are wrestling with that. You're you're keeping salvation in your own hands. Where, Where does that tunnel lead to in the end? It doesn't lead to salvation. The only way of salvation is trusting God's promise, the promise spoken by God here in Genesis that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The only way of salvation is trusting in Jesus. Now, what of the Christian life? Many of us are Christians. Many of us have been Christians for some time. How we live as Christians. We become Christians by coming to terms with our inability to save ourselves. I mean, I look back on my life and I that happened when I was young, and I look back, and maybe it was much harder at the time than I thought, but it was quite easy for me to come to terms with the fact that I couldn't save myself. But in the Christian life, is that a lesson that I need to keep remembering? When I become more able, more sophisticated, I have more this, that, and the other. So I forget the promise, and I wander from God. I take righteousness or the righteous life into my own hands. We keep trusting in the promise. That's all we can do. Let me rephrase that. We keep trusting in the promise. That's all we can do. It's different. That's all we can do. It's the only way to be safe. We trust in the promise of God's word. We live in obedience to it, depending on God's grace for the enabling. Now, but it's hard. It's very hard. There's a little detail in verses 2 and 3 that shows us how hard it is. Just look at the detail. We could spend a lot of time looking at a lot of the details in these texts, but occasionally we'll just stop and look. So Sarai said to Abram, verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived, now here are the two words, ten years. Ten years. Ten years. Ten years of waiting and trusting. 
10 years. And he takes his righteousness into his own hands. That's how hard it is. Humanly speaking, because of the length of time perhaps, or with broken hearts, and these passages contain circumstances in people's lives that, that, that cause real brokenness. There is every reason, humanly speaking, sometimes not to trust in God's promises. The obedience of faith is hard. The obedience of faith can only be independence on God's grace every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, for a lifetime, that we, that we hold on to the means of grace, which are what? His word, his people, his church. Until we are with Jesus in the new creation, with bodies free of sin and suffering in a world free of sin and suffering, Until then, there will be days of obedience and disobedience. Battles won and lost, seasons long or short of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, vitality and dryness. But because we know and because we are reminded again this morning as we sit under God's Word that our salvation is entirely dependent on what God has done for us through Jesus, we will fight on. We will struggle on as victors, not as victims. We are victors over sin because sin is on the way out. We are victors over suffering for suffering will go. But it does not mean the battle is not fierce or the suffering very hard. In the end, it never pays to go our own way. It never pays to depart from the Word of God, to go down a different track. It never pays to turn away from God's promise. Disobeying God's Word is never the right way to go. Now, why is it when we do, and I have thought this week of times and circumstances in recent past and long past for me where I'm going down a path that is disobedient to God, why do I not just go back? I think when you're down one of these roads, I think you're more in danger of self-righteousness than before you went. I think when you're down that road, you think, you're convinced the only way you can get out is to take getting out into your own hands. Because you went away from God by taking righteousness into your own hands. And so how do you get back? Maybe you're stuck in that place now. Well, thirdly, what happens if we have turned away from God? What do we do? What do we do right now? Perhaps it's not theoretical. You might be not trusting, doing the things that God tells you to do. You might be doing things your own way. You might be down a line or 
more likely experiencing the consequences of wrong decisions or look back when that happened. What do you do? Just listen. The angel of the Lord found you. One of my uh, mentors in London, we've had lots of London themes today, the V&A, the jeweler shop, St. Helens, Dick Lucas, an old minister. Now, he's 97 now. He uh, told me a story once of when he went to one of the big posh English public schools to do an assembly. And uh, that was the kind of world he was in. You can imagine that the appetite for a sermon in a school assembly was not particularly strong. So he stood up and he said, I'd just like us today to study a very familiar story in the Bible, the parable of the lost shepherd. And he said that all over the room, the, the kids and the master's heads went up and said, lost shepherd. And when we're far from God, it's not the parable of the lost shepherd, it's the parable of the lost sheep. And who searches for the sheep? The shepherd. And what happens here is what happens. How does it happen in our lives? It happens as we sit here listening to this. An angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. It might be exactly where you are. The Spirit of God in you has found you. It's found you. Where does he find you? By a spring of water. What does the Bible mean by a spring of water? The life-giving nourishment of the Word of God. The living well. Jesus says, come to me, drink. He found her and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? That's a great question, isn't it? Just let that sink in. Where have you come from and where are you going now? It's direct, isn't it? Where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Humanly speaking, entirely understandable. Now, what does the angel of the Lord say to her? Go back, return to your mistress, and submit to her. That's like impossibly hard to do, isn't it? What the angel of the Lord is saying to to Hagar is go back to the land and the place of promise. And I know it's incredibly hard what I'm asking. You cannot see how that will work out. Go back to the place of promise. Now, for some people in our context, go back to the church, to the living church of Christ. Go back to God's people. Go back to the Word of God. Go back to Jesus. Over the years, a number of people have said to me, but the church has hurt me. Go back. Go back to God's people. Go back to the place of promise. 
That word return is shuv, S-H-U-V in Hebrew. It's a very, very common word. Return. Come back. Come back. Come back. Or I think more particularly, theologically, the Lord says to us, let me bring you back. And then there is a promise, the angel of the Lord, verse 10, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord promised her promise of blessing. And then, behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then verse 12, you know, that's not going to be plain sailing ahead. We'll come to Ishmael later on in Genesis. And then the focus on Hagar for now, verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord and spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, or you are a God who sees me, for she said, truly, seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lai Roy, means, I have no idea if that's the right pronunciation, it means the well of the living one who sees me. And she bore Abraham a son. Now, just let these phrases sink in, and by God's grace and in the power of His Spirit, maybe it'll connect right where you are. The angel of the Lord found her. Return to the land of promise where there is blessing, even though it is impossible and hard to see that there will be. Or God sees you. He sees you where you are. He looks after you. Come back to Him. Come back with Him. Come back to Jesus and live in obedience to his word, the astounding kindness of God to Hagar, to Ishmael. Now, when, here, here's how we're hardwired in our self-righteousness. When we contemplate the astounding kindness of God, we even might hear that as God disguising in that a harshness and a judgment. Actually, he doesn't really mean that. Actually, God is being kind to them because God is just concerned not to be tripped up in his salvation plan by humanity. Actually, God is saying, look, I will not have you mess up my plan. So it's going to look like I'm being kind to you. That's just not the truth. We're going to sing in a minute now, in two minutes, Amazing Grace. Um, I got thinking this week, um, what would it be like if we rewrote the hymn from God's point of view, as opposed to us singing about His amazing grace to us? Because the orientation of the Bible when it comes to grace is God to us. You see, it's God to us. So how does God think when He sees you and me this morning Here's my, here's my go at that. It's not, it's not a, it's to paraphrase. How sweet it is, God thinks. I think this is right. How sweet it is that you are saved. How sweet it is that you were lost, but I found you. That you were blind, but I opened your eyes. How sweet it is that the grace that I've shown to you through your life has led you to fear me in the right sense. So you struggle, your conscience is alerted when you seek to walk away from my word. 
How sweet it is that my grace is able to bear all your anxieties and your fears. I know that it's hard, but you know I'm there. Like you, I remember how precious my grace was to you. I remember the day when you first believed. How wonderful it was when you grasped grace. And I want you to experience that every day. And all these dangers and toils and snares that you have come through, how did you get through them? It was me. It was me. You only saw that when you look back. But it was me. I've kept you safe thus far, and I'll bring you back to a place of safety now if you'll only come, and I'll bring you home to glory. My promises to you are good. My word is true. My hope is real. My hope is secure. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And just think, all of us, about eternity, the new creation, when we've been there with Jesus for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, well, that's just the beginning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that this dark and yet beautiful passage will convict us all of the bleakness of our sin and the beauty of our Savior. And that in the Christian life, as we are tempted to take this road and that road, to take the life of faith into our own hands, hold us in the place of promise, in the habitat of your word. And if we have drifted away, and we all do, and some of us are right there now, and if the angel of the Lord has stolen upon us and found us, and found us in a place that we are drinking in the life-giving grace of the gospel, calling us back to the land of promise, calling us back to the path of obedience. There is no hostility in your heart. There is only kindness and commitment to save us. Lord, help us to relish our salvation. Help us to relish the Lord Jesus. Help us to love him more to love him more dearly, to follow him more clearly. Raise our affections for our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen.